You're listening to Both Sides of the Stethoscope, where medicine meets the human heart. This podcast is hosted by me, Dr. Colby Salerno, a cardiologist, and my co-host, Dr. Aline Gregosian, an ICU doctor. What makes our podcast unique? We've both had heart transplants. Join us as we blend our medical expertise with personal journeys, aiming to educate and foster understanding between doctors and patients. From cutting-edge medical discussions to personal reflections, welcome to a podcast that explores the heartbeat of healthcare and the shared experience that connects us all. Let's get on with the episode. This episode is sponsored by Paragonics Technologies, an industry leader committed to protecting the gift of organ donation. To learn how Paragonics is reshaping the standard of care across transplantation to optimize patient outcomes, visit Paragonics.com. Hi, everyone. Welcome back to another episode. I'm one of your hosts, Colby Salerno, here with my co-host, Aline Gregosian. Hi, everyone. Today, we have the pleasure of welcoming on Dr. Philip Adamson. Dr. Adamson is the Divisional Vice President and Chief Medical Officer for the Heart Failure Division at Abbott. In this capacity, Dr. Adamson is responsible for global development of Abbott's heart failure formulary, spanning cardiac resynchronization therapy to the CardioMEMS HF system. It is our honor to have you on our show tonight and get to speak with you, Dr. Adamson. Well, thank you, Colby. Thanks for having me. We're so excited to have you here, Dr. Adamson. Well, it's my pleasure. I look forward to this. You know, we uh, podcasters have to stick together and enjoy this (laughs) experience. Of course. Um, So, you know, everybody knows the name Abbott, obviously, Abbott Cardiovascular, especially in the space that we, that me and Colby do a lot of advocacy work in. Uh, You know, both of us are heart transplant recipients, um, know a lot about advanced heart failure. Kobe himself is a cardiologist just like you. Uh, but I do, I am kind of curious, what is your background and what got you interested in Abbott? Oh, well, Elena, this is a long story, but uh, I'll keep it uh, abridged, hopefully. Um, my, my, I'm, I'm very fortunate to have a, a remarkably colorful background, one that has uh, uh, really had a lot of opportunities for learning and for career choices. Uh, started, believe it or not, as as an accountant, uh, an oil and gas tax accountant in Oklahoma uh, after graduating from college, and um, then worked myself through both uh, a next undergraduate educational process for pre-medical qualifications and entered medical school. Um, you know, it, it turns out as I was uh, studying physiology and the systems of the body, I, I really fell in love with the heart and the circulatory system early on. So it was, a, it was pretty clear to me that I wanted to, to focus on that as a physician and uh, eventually uh, did my, uh, my internal medicine training and, and, and cardiology fellowship with the intent of joining the faculty of the University of Oklahoma at the time uh, to pursue an academic practice. Uh, Was very fortunate to have my fellowship funded by the National Institutes of Health. And then shortly after joining the faculty, uh, won my first uh, NIH grant to study, uh, to really study the nervous system and how it controls the heart and how that control when it goes bad can actually lead to lethal arrhythmias and sudden cardiac death. As the, as sudden cardiac death was the focus, um, at the time that I started, sudden death was a, was a post-myocardial infarction 
uh, phenomenon. So after, you know, somebody had a heart attack the first year after that, there was about a 15% chance of dying suddenly. Um, and that was around the time when interventional cardiology was born. And we, we, we learned the pathophysiology of, of an acute heart attack as being a clot process and a ruptured plaque rather than a really tight narrowing that just continued to get tight and tighter. And, and so it turns out that as I started to enter the sudden cardiac death sort of investigator group, the nature of sudden death changed. It changed from a postmyocardial infarction process to a heart failure problem. And, and now people who were treated with angioplasties or stents in the throes of an acute myocardial infarction were actually living, surviving, and developing heart failure. And, it, and, and at that point, then those people, those patients became the ones at highest risk for sudden death. And, 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 and we, we sort of changed our, our, our view of investigation to look at how heart failure can lead to the substrate for arrhythmias that lead to sudden cardiac death. And, uh, and that's how I became very interested in the whole process of heart failure. Um, developed an animal model of heart failure and then studied what happens when heart develops heart failure and and it and 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 then clinically um, began disease management for heart failure um, in the mid 1990s I think it's I think it's important for us to remember that gosh at that time it was very there's very little you could do for a person who had heart failure. We didn't have really understood the neurohormonal hypothesis of heart failure. And for those of you who don't know what that means, that's uh, uh, that when the heart is damaged and can't pump as well as it should, it, 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 the body responds to that with certain changes in how the nervous system controls the heart and blood vessels and how the hormonal system changes to control the circulation in the heart. And it's those it's, it's it turns out that those are nice to have if we're you know dehydrated or or hemorrhaging or stuck on a desert island. But if we have heart failure, constant activation of those systems really leads to progression of disease. So so we you know, we then started to look into other disease management programs, developed one of the first in the country and uh, and then tried to figure out how to manage people who had the disease so it's been a remarkable journey, and uh, that kind of started my journey was uh, was really starting to help folks that suffer with heart failure to, you know, get better, to tolerate the medications, to provide everything we could for them, and to remotely manage them. That's great. That's very interesting. My dad, I don't know how much of my story you know, Dr. Adamson, but I had um, a desmoplakin gene mutation that eventually led to dilated cardiomyopathy. My dad was initially diagnosed with this in the mid-1990s. Um, he, at that time, like, they didn't know that it was a genetic issue. Um, so they, ta- they thought maybe it was, a, a, like, a viral myocarditis that had led to a cardiomyopathy. Um, and at that time, like, they had just emigrated to the United States maybe a couple years before he was diagnosed. And he had gone to, like, a free clinic or something and, and eventually got sent to where he's at right now, which is Kaiser, um, as a patient. And they had told him, uh, you know, you have this ejection fraction of 20%. Um, you're probably not going to make it. You, you may need something called a heart transplant. He didn't know. uh, Keep in mind, he didn't speak English that well, uh, didn't know anything about the disease process. And just, he was so lost at that time. 
um, said no to a transplant, uh, didn't want to be on the waiting list. Uh, and, and kind of, and, and at that time, I think he was in his thirties, uh, early forties when he first got diagnosed. Um, there were no other treatments, treatment, uh, options, or, I mean, nothing that they were doing where his center was or where his cardiologist was. Uh, they had put him on a Coreg, um, and lisinopril, and he just like got an echo every year. And, and that's kind of where he's been. And right now he's in, he's 67, um, still on now on GDMT, but you know, always like he's amazed at how much things have changed since back then. Um, when I first got diagnosed with heart failure, it was all sudden. So we didn't realize that it was genetic until after my diagnosis. And he till this day, he's like, well, like I'll just get myself an LVAD or something if I need one. Like at that time there were no other options. So it's just interesting to, to even look into the history of heart failure and all the different things that we have nowadays. It is a remarkable history. And, you know, in my lifetime, back in the in the late 60s, early 70s, when patients with biventricular failure would come in the hospital with severe ascites and peripheral edema, we treated or they treated that peripheral edema with an incision in the skin and, and a trocar that would go into interstitial wow. space. Flew it to a bottle next to the bed. I mean, that's in... In, in the recorded history, yeah, and in my lifetime, we've gone from that to an advanced implantable assist pump that can be in the patient forever and extends life. It's, it's just like, you know, it, it's kind of like starting your life riding horses uh, and then watching someone step on the moon. You know, it, 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 mm-hmm. it, it has been a remarkable technology development and evolution for people with heart failure. So much hope for heart failure now, uh, given all of the things that we've developed. So, and, and that's been my life. Being able to watch and participate in the development of many of those technologies has been just one of the most amazing things for me to experience. Yeah, that's incredible. Yeah, I'm naturally biased uh, in terms of why I'm heading into heart failure, but I can't help but constantly get excited um, when new things, you know, show up. And in my lifetime, just seeing, you know, the difference between the HeartMate 2 and the HeartMate 3, uh, which we'll get into, has been, you know, remarkable. So before we deep dive into uh, these devices, the term heart failure is a pretty scary term when I tell patients you have this diagnosis. How do you try and explain it to, to patients and to people to try and give them an idea of what heart failure truly means? Well, Colby, that's a, that, is a, that is a tough one. You know, people think, well, my heart's failed. I'm, why am I alive? You know, and, and uh, uh, did I have a heart attack or, you know, what does it really mean? And, and I think, you know, it's, it's so important to understand that, uh, you know, the heart can get into a condition with damage that it is simply unable to provide the appropriate circulation to the body that's required. And, and when that happens, the symptoms of heart failure, which typically are breathing difficulties or severe fatigue or exercise intolerance or, or even resting symptoms where you just simply can't get comfortable because of the, the problem with, with, with shortness of breath, all of those symptoms arise as a result of the heart just simply unable to, to, to pump blood to the body. And, and, and it's important because there's really two types of heart failure, right? There's, there's, there's heart failure that is associated with a heart that's weak and can't squeeze the blood out. So, 
So that's heart failure with reduced ejection fraction or reduce or HEFRAF. But half the folks in the in the in the world, Western world at least, that are hospitalized with heart failure have the opposite. Their their heart squeezes strong, but it simply is so stiff that it can't relax. And 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 the circulation problem that arises as a result of that is more uh, associated backline to the lung circulation and. And same symptoms develop. It's hard. You can't tell from the symptoms and how people present most of the time what what heart failure syndrome or phenotype they have. But it is important for people to know that heart failure is not a death sentence. It's not something that can't be approached and treated and treated successfully many times. But it's also important to know that it's very severe. I think we we sometimes fail as cardiologists to portray heart failure as the in in the severity that it really is. And if we were oncologists, we wouldn't have much of a problem convincing people that cancer is a bad thing. But mm-hmm. in the cardiology world, many times we portray, oh, you just have heart failure. Well, you know what? The mortality associated with heart failure is sometimes worse than most cancers. Mm-hmm. And so if we, if we don't take this, ser- this this disease seriously, then many of the treatments that we provide for our patients are missed and, and are not chosen because people are feeling reasonably well. And so it's a balance between giving hope, really portraying the disease in a, in a rational and, and realistic way, uh, but also providing patients with a way to address this disease and, and become successful with it. And I guess with that, because I get asked this often, especially in ICU patients, because they're usually very critically ill by the time I see them um, with all the different treatments that are out there for different types of heart failure. uh, When should a patient even inquire about some of these advanced therapies like LVAD or whatever it may be? I know there's no black and white answer to this because I never know what to say specifically either. Um, But what's the best approach as far as when a patient comes in, has heart failure, when should they start thinking that they need an LVAD, for example. The way I've approached this, and I do think that it's appropriate, is, is that when a patient is, is diagnosed, especially with reduced ejection fraction heart failure, that they need to understand what could happen to them and what the, what, what the end game is. And, and that doesn't mean that I need an, a, a, an advanced therapy tomorrow or next week or even in 10 years, but it means what are the things that are available for me if I do progress to the point that the medicines are just simply not working or the devices are not correcting the problem? When, when is it that I you know, should be considering things that are, that are more advanced, like a left ventricular assist device implant or a heart transplant? And, and I think being comprehensive about that, patients sometimes listen to cardiologists who may not have training in advanced heart failure. And many times the transition from what we would call ambulatory stable heart failure into advanced heart failure status is a difficult, as you mentioned, a, a, difficult, uh, a difficult transition to recognize. And so, and so patients sometimes just simply rely on what their cardiologist or their internist or their family physician tell them. And, uh, you know, they don't, they don't know even what's available. So I think patients now and moving forward, I believe patients have access to a tremendous repository of information about their disease. 
And I think that it's very important today for every patient to be their own advocate and to ensure that the delivery of care they're receiving uh, represents the state of the art and everything that they could they could have to treat their disease. Like I said, it's a, it's a serious disease, and it's one that progresses typically, um, even when we do all of the right things. And it's important to have a plan that if these things we're doing don't arrest the progression of this disease, and I get worse over time, what are the options that I have? When will you know that I'm ready for those options or to consider them? And when should I see a, a specialist that's trained in advanced heart failure care? Those are the things I think patients should really keep in mind as they as they take this journey, uh, because there's so much, as we've already said, there's so much you can do for people with heart failure. Uh, and unfortunately, currently in this society, in the United States, we have the technology and many patients, if not most patients who could benefit from it are not referred and wind up dying as a result of their heart failure. In terms of patients, you know, as they get to the end stages of heart failure, think of heart transplant and LVAD as bucket of advanced therapies. I always think of the third one as, as palliative care, which is an important third option, important to be discussed, um, but maybe for a, a different podcast episode. For patients who are at the end considering transplant and LVAD, if they're being told you know, maybe transplant's not the best option, and LVAD is, what should they expect if they're going to be getting an LVAD? And what do you feel you would be like quoting them in terms of how long an LVAD could last in a patient? It's a great question. And and certainly it continues to evolve as technology evolves. And as you mentioned already, the answer to that question is different. If you're talking about HeartMate 2, or if you're talking about the uh, left ventricular assist device available in this world today, which is the HeartMate 3 device. Uh, we have spent the last 45 years developing uh, what we call now durable mechanical circulatory support devices. And all each iteration of device has been engineered to try to overcome some of the limitations of the previous device generations. So the HeartMate 3 device, again, the which is one of one of our products at, at Abbott, is is the only active med left ventricular assist device uh, available in the world, and uh, and and is essentially a pump that is powered by uh, batteries that patients carry around and connect from the outside to the device that's implanted on the inside. The pump is, is it's almost magical. It's, it's what we call magnetically levitated. So a rotor is suspended in the blood flow to, by, by magnets that surround it. And then it spins at a rate that propels the blood out of the heart and into the aorta to help support the, the, the circulation. So just as the name implies, it assists the left ventricle in, and its ability to pump and provide circulation to the body. Uh, this device is, uh, is remarkable. It, it, is in, it is durable. It pumps for years. We have now data studying in, in, in clinical trials and in registries out five to seven years. And patients have, um, you know, a really amazing experience with this device, even, even that far out. And currently, 
the device is indicated for individuals who do have advanced heart failure in what we call Intermax 1 through 4 uh, profiles. And, and essentially, those are folks with large dilated hearts whose hearts are very weak and, again, require either drugs to help circulation or um, they, they simply are in, you know, various stages of shock. And, and in that regard, this pump, when implanted, helps the heart produce an output so that patients can walk around, do whatever they want to do, really, uh, while they carry the, the external devices to empower uh, the implanted device. Uh, this all sounds complicated, but, you know, once you kind of incorporate those things into your life, you're alive. And, and in fact, the mortality associated with advanced heart failure is measured in 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 a one to two year um, uh, lifespan, but now with these devices, we see people live out to seven, eight. I've I've met people that have lived with an LVAD for 14, 15 years, and so this is wow. this is extending life. And and when we objectively measure the health status and quality of that life, it's it's really it's really outstanding. I also think it's important to talk about. Whether or not someone, um, when they get a VAD, are they usually expecting a, to, it to be a bridge to transplant, or are we more, uh, are we seeing patients just live with an LVAD? It's an interesting question, Eileen, and it and it is one that has evolved over time. In fact, we we did the Momentum Three trial with HeartMate Three. Part of the goal of that trial was to redefine those terms of destination therapy and bridge to transplant. You got to remember that 45 years ago when VADs were developed, it was in the hopes of getting that patient out of your intensive care unit and, and, and to a transplant just to help them survive the intensive care unit stay until we could find an organ. It was a miracle almost when we could get the patient out of the intensive care unit to the step down unit in the hospital and then get transplanted. And then we said, well, I wonder if we could get them, you know, out of the hospital. And so the technology evolved such that, you know, my, one of my colleagues, Bob Corbos at the, at UPMC sent the first patient home and it wasn't really home. It was to a, to an apartment, not too far from the hospital, but sent, sent him home with, with, with an LVAD. And that was, that was a miracle. And then we evolved to say, well, you know, this is working pretty well. I wonder if we could do this over a longer period of time. And, and so we started with the intent of bridging people, keeping them alive until they could get an organ transplant. Um, and then we, you know, evolved to, you know, hey, this can support people for a long, long time. So, so, so the Momentum 3, as I mentioned, really tried to redefine what we say. And, and so we now try to say, are we going to have short-term or long-term support? Because in some countries, for example, it may take four years to find an organ. So is that mm -hmm. destination therapy? Is that, you know, what, what is that? That's actually long-term support, again, to keep people alive and functional until an organ can be found. Uh, some people get a left ventricular assist device to, dis to discover if they're Heart and lung circulation can can adapt to the new support, and and some of the things that can keep someone from being a candidate for transplant can get treated, like smoking cessation or other things that can sometimes keep them from being a transplant candidate. So now it's a bridge to candidacy, which can take years. Um, sometimes it's a bridge to transplant, and patients get transplanted in the next six months. 
But the issue is that the, the success of, of LVAD therapy to get people long-term support has now led both CMS and payers, as well as the community, to redefine this to, you know, short versus long-term therapy. And, and you know, candidacy for transplant is never, uh, is not, is not always just discarded for people who we traditionally call destination therapy patients. So it's become a little bit, uh, a little bit clearer, but maybe a little bit more complex in that right. there are several different reasons to implant uh, an LVAD. But, but what we tried to do was say, look, in terms of reimbursement, we, we can't as, as physicians be, be soothsayers and say, I can predict in two years, this patient will receive a transplant. We didn't know. And so now we have a device that can last as long as it needs to last. And if transplant is in the in in the future for that patient, then we know we can support them, give them a good quality of life, help them get rehabilitated and stronger and nutritionally re- replete before they get a transplant, and 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 keep them alive. And and that's you know really a remarkable evolution over a short period of time, if you think about it. Yeah, definitely. And simplest way I've had people put is if you can have a transplant, an LVAD can get you there if you need more time. If you say, like you said, are a smoker, an LVAD can give you enough time to quit smoking to get you onto a transplant list. And then if you're not a transplant candidate, you can live out your life with an LVAD uh, for as long as you know we're able to do so. And so I feel like we're just at the cusp of maybe what mechanical, you know, durable type of support is going to look like in this country as, as we move forward. Well, you're right, Kobe. And, and if you think about who in this population of people with heart failure, you know, in the United States, we think there's probably, you know, seven to 8 million people with heart failure, half of whom have a reduced ejection fraction. And if, if you do the numbers and look at the, at that group of people, there's probably somewhere between 40 and 50,000 people who have advanced heart failure. That would be a great candidate for LVADs. And, and, and guess what? 3,000, 4,000 of those patients receive this life-saving care. So that's, what I, that's why I, th- I think it's incredibly important for every educational opportunity that patients have is to remember that they are their own advocates. They need to know what they can you know, benefit from and ensure that the, the, the care team that's taking care of them, I'm sure a wonderful group of very smart doctors and nurses are those that can make those decisions or know about them so, to make a referral. And, and just like if I had cancer, I wouldn't have it cared for by a family physician. It doesn't make anything, didn't, didn't make a, that's not a disparaging remark about family physicians. It's just that they don't, aren't trained to take care of cancer and deliver chemotherapy. I would go to a can, a, an oncologist. We now have advanced heart failure specialists that are trained specifically to provide advanced heart failure care. And the key element is for the those taking care of patients with heart failure to recognize when it's time to send a patient for more elevated care in a specialist's hands. I completely agree. So everyone listening can send their patients to me in a year and a half. <laughs> <laughs> completely switching gears. Um, one of Abbott's other, you know, well-known devices is a device called a CardioMEMS. And I feel like CardioMEMS finds itself on the opposite end of the spectrum of the LVAD uh, in a way of people maybe early on in heart failure. 
Um, so how does CardioMEMS work and how it, can it benefit patients? Oh, that's a great question. And, you know, it's a remarkable technology. Um, this is an, now this is a monitoring system. So when I, you know, actually started disease management programs at the University of Oklahoma, what struck us was that our goal was to keep people stable and out of the hospital because people, you know, heart failure is traditionally thought of as a disease that intermittently is treated in the hospital in people who are severely ill that require rescue therapies that can only be given in the vein and in the hospital. And so this, this thought that that's the way heart failure should be treated is, is, is honestly very old and wrong because patients, if monitored properly, can be kept stable, kept under good control, and kept out of the hospital. So we evolved our ability to monitor people because the real, real way to do that is to have an opportunity to check on people when they're at home. Because that's where all the badness occurs. It's not in your office, that one sliver of time in the patient's life that they are granted an audience in front of the, 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 the cardiologist. It is, it is the vast majority of their life that is uh, spent outside the confines of the office. That's where people get sick. And so we started to develop physiologic signals from implanted cardio, you know, like pacemakers, biventricular pacemakers, defibrillators that we could harvest as physiologic markers that could tell us if a patient's status is changing. And, 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 and we, we saw some really interesting things when we continuously monitored those people, but it didn't provide us with a disease management program, which really needed us to understand the underlying disease when it changed, tell us what to do, and then tell us if what we did was successful. And that's where CardioMEMS comes in, because we found that when we measure pressures inside the lung circulation, it's those pressures that change as the first sign that a patient is starting to change their status. And that change occurs when water or fluid in the body shifts from one compartment inside the, the body into the lung circulation. And that increases the pressures over a day or three, three, you know, three to five days even. But that change occurs three weeks before patients develop symptoms. And that change then can be dealt with in a gentle, nice way of just simply intensifying diuretics for that moment until those pressures come back down. And that stabilizes the patient even before they know there's even a problem. And so CardioMEMS then solves this remote monitoring issue by providing a technology that's called a microelectromechanical system. It's a beautiful technology. It doesn't require a battery and it doesn't require a lead. It's in fact empowered by outside the body interrogation. So an antenna can focus radio frequency energy. It's, this energy is harmless to people. And it goes in, hits the device, empowers it to measure pressures, and then sends that information back out to the interrogation unit. And patients every day can lie back on, the, on this, this antenna, hit a button, and now I can have their filling pressures every day. Now, do I have to look at every day? No, I don't, because the system is set such that I can set their their goal pressures, their thresholds, and if they're in those thresholds of pressures and they're close to their goal, you know, it's golden. I don't have to look at those pressures every day, but we have patients upload every day to create a trend that can guide our decision-making remotely. So you can now intensify diuretics, personalize the diuretic therapy 
which by the way, is part of guideline directed medical therapy. It's not one of the four pillars because it's not a disease modifying uh, drug, but it is ubiquitous. Everyone with heart failure is on a diuretic. We don't know how to personalize it without monitoring their filling pressures. So this, this filled the gap. It provided a signal that allowed us to know the underlying disease, know when it changed, know what to do, and know when, our, when we were successful. We submitted this now to three prospective randomized clinical trials as a disease management strategy compared to usual care. And each of those clinical trials demonstrated that using filling pressures with this system and hemodynamically guided heart failure management was a superior way to keeping people stable and out of the hospital and a better quality of life. And probably, and, and, it, and it appears reducing mortality as well as reducing progression of disease. Remarkable system, quite frankly. That's wonderful. Um, as an intensivist, I love cardio MEMS, or at least when I was in fellowship and did a lot of CTICU time, it was great because it was the patients that we already had all the information on and they didn't need a swan. So it was it was uh, great for the ICU in, in some ways. And I guess um, then we'll get to our final question. Uh, we ask everyone this or almost everybody the same question at the end, but you know, as the CMO of Abbott and all the wonderful things you've done, the history of heart failure that you've seen over the last few years of your career, what do you think is in the future of heart failure? Do we see a HeartMate 4 coming out anytime soon or anything else? Well, you're, you're very kind to have said a few years in my career. This is uh, this <laughs> has been a long time of my career, a wonderful long time and lots, hopefully, of years to come. The future's bright. The future's amazing. And, and so we could, you know, we could talk another podcast about the future, but, but I'll, I'll, I'll kind of summarize those, but, you know, from a cardio perspective, what we, what we see is, is now really trying to involve the patient. We would love for cardio to become the continuous glucose monitor of heart failure. You know, if you think about diabetics, how many diabetics see an endocrinologist? Last time I asked that question to a bunch of endocrinologists, it was about less than 10% of people with diabetes actually see an endocrinologist because they can monitor their own blood sugar. They can keep it under control. They know what to do. We are now very shortly going to be able to involve the patient in their own monitoring with guidance as to what they should do uh, to maintain their stability. And, and now we move from this paternalistic dependent model of I have to be around my doctor or I'm going to die to, hey, I'm in control of this disease. I have the data. I know what to do. And, and that is a beautiful transition. And I believe that heart failure patients, most of them, if not absolutely the vast majority, will be able to participate in their own care such that they can now take control of their lives. Heart failure takes everything away from you. It takes ability to eat, to drink, to do anything, to walk, to exercise, to travel, and 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 what we want to do is give all that back, and, and and I think we can do that. So the application of advanced analytics of of all the things that we can build into an automatic monitoring system, and even all the way into the way future of building an in an internal closed loop system that could deliver therapy based on what's sensed by these sensors, I think is is the penultimate of of how we'll manage this disease in the future. When the disease gets to be an advanced disease, what's the future there? Well, yeah, there, there, there will be iterations, new iterations of the heart pump called HeartMate 3 
there there will be smaller devices, smaller devices that can fit in kids, can, that can be easier to implant, that can that can provide the same power that HeartMate 3 does and the same hemocompatibility such that there won't be blood clots, there won't be strokes, there won't be pump thrombosis or any of the other things that 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 we saw with the other previous generations of, of these devices. And finally, what we believe, if, if battery technology would just simply catch up, we believe that implantable batteries that can run the system on the inside without having to have a drive line or carry around batteries is 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 is, is going to happen at some point in the future. It is limited literally by the ability of batteries to recharge and cycles that they can take before they have to be replaced. Um, but we're we're working on that, and 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 it does take multiple different technologies. But our future is going to be incredibly bright uh, in terms of devices for people with heart failure, and then the transplant world obviously is is one that's transitioning as well. So. I, I tell you, you know, it's uh, when people saw that or heard that I had uh, become a heart failure cardiologist, they they thought I'd lost my mind because we had this opportunity to, you know, open blood clots out of out of heart arteries, save people's life, snatch them out of the jaws of death and and, and at two o'clock in the morning and be the hero every time. Uh, and and, you know, what what thankfully I saw and we, you know, my colleagues saw was a future of treating heart failure and being successful. And I think that success is, is what I want to see when I look patients in the eye, because that's what motivates me to today are the times that I saw people with no hope with a disease they thought was going to kill them tomorrow. And, you know, just like your dad, Aline, we look mm-hmm. now 10 years later and they're still doing well. And, and, you know, that's the cool thing about being a heart failure specialist. No disrespect to interventional cardiologists, but I also prefer heart failure cardiologists. So <laughs> <laughs> they're all great. They're all great. Yeah. And I, I think, I think that's a, that's a very optimistic and appropriately optimistic way of looking at the future of heart failure. I think that's exactly how me and Kobe feel. And I think that there's so many uh, awesome things that are going to happen in the world of heart failure, including, you know, remote monitoring, being able to do the things that patients just even 10, 15, 20 years ago weren't able to do. Um, So I'm excited for the future as well. Agreed. And I think that's such a nice positive point to end on. And I just can't thank you enough, Dr. Adamson, for your time. Um, I feel like you gave such good information, um, not only for our listeners, but also for Aline and I, and hopefully, you know, just a continued relationship as I feel like you're part of the forefront of of where this technology in the future is headed. Well, Colby, I'll tell you, thank you very much for your mission and and doing what you're, you and Elaine are doing, uh, giving back to the community, because I do think that, you know, this opportunity for education and for dissemination of knowledge is, is so key for our patients to really understand what they can do for themselves, honestly. And as we evolve going forward, I, I'm 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 anxious to see our patients become in charge. Agreed. Yeah, I don't think Aline and I ever sought out being patient advocates, but we find ourselves <laughs> falling into that category far and far more often. So we're we're happy to do it. Absolutely. I got the LinkedIn badge, so it's like official now. For some reason, <laughs> they think I'm a great patient advocate. <laughs> well, I'm sure you are. That's it. It, it is very important. 
We just want to thank Dr. Adamson of Abbott Cardiovascular. It was such a great episode and it was an honor to have him on our show today. Thanks for listening to Both Sides of the Stethoscope with your hosts, me, Aline Gregosian, and Kobe Salerno. You can reach us at bothsidesofthestethoscope at gmail.com. You can also find us on both Instagram and Twitter. Our handles are both sides of the stethoscope on Instagram and BSOT stethoscope on Twitter or X. So you can find us on both sides of the stethoscope on any of your favorite podcast platforms. Feel free to share or subscribe to our podcast. And if you really enjoy listening to us, we'd love to get a positive review. 